We're turning now to God's Word, and uh, we've been studying this summer the book of uh, Revelation. We're in Revelation uh, chapter 9, and if you're uh, visiting with us today, strange passage we're going to read together, but uh, I'll just encourage you, these are some of the deepest, most profound words ever written about human culture and human history, and I think they're a tremendous encouragement for God's people, and so it's going to require our intention, attention, and there's a lot of details in here. So um, we'll read the text, and then I'll, I'll pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and, and guide us this morning. So Revelation chapter 9, this is God's word. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them, for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts uh, were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their uh, hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breast uh, plates, like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with uh, horses rushing into battle. They have tails and, and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people uh, for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past, and behold... Two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before, before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been preparing for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted horses was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode on them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them... They wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? 
Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for these words, and we pray that you'd send your Holy Spirit, that these words would lead us to your promises, to your almighty power, to your grace, and that we would trust in our Savior, Jesus, and that we would obey him, we would follow him, we would wait for you, we would endure. Lord, create in this, in us, that, that kind of life, and so uh, be our teacher, shine light on us, through your holy word, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're in uh, this section of the book of Revela- Revelation called the Seven Trumpets. And uh, the, we're in the fifth and sixth trumpets in Revelation chapter 9. And the book of Revelation is describing in prophetic language the first generation of Christians, which the Bible understood that when Jesus came in the first generation of Christians is the turning point of all of history. And so if that's the case, what are the trumpets talking about? The seven trumpets. What part of that history are the trumpets talking about? Well, to help us understand that, one of the things, if you go back to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, it says that the Israelites in the Old Testament had seven annual feasts that they had throughout the year. And it turns out that the book of Revelation is structured around those seven feasts. The whole book is structured around those seven feasts. I can't go into the details of all the seven feasts, but I will tell you this. Do you know what the fifth feast in the Israelites' year was called? The Feast of Trumpets. And so we are in the period of, that corresponds to the Feast of Trumpets. And the feast that was right before the Feast of Trumpets was the Feast of Pentecost. And the feast that was right after, after the Feast of Trumpets was the Day of Atonement. And uh, you know how much time there was between the day of Pentecost and the day of atonement? Five months. And you see that mention of five months in the trumpets there in verse 5, how it says, they were allowed to torment them for five months. And so historically, Revelation is following the chronology of the first generation of Christians. So in Revelation 4 and 5, it describes when Jesus ascended into heaven. That was the first thing that happened. And then the seals in Revelation 6 and 7 are when fire is cast down on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes on the church. And then the age of the trumpets is the years leading up to 60 AD, you know, when most of the New Testament was written. There were all kinds of divisions that were happening outside the church and inside the church. That's the period of the trumpets. And then we're going to read uh, next summer about the seven bowls of wrath is when uh, the great persecution came under the emperor Nero and many Christians were persecuted. And then Revelation ends with the fall of Babylon, the fall of the great city, which is Jerusalem, that happens in 70 AD. And so this is giving us the events from 30 AD when Jesus rose from the dead and was ascended into heaven up until 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And the trumpets are these decades right in the middle of that history. And it turns out this period of the trumpets has a lot that corresponds with our generation. And there is a lot of application to what we are facing in our culture and our life right now. And so I think this text has a lot to say to us. And so as I make this connection for us, I'd like to do it just under these three headings for us today. This is what they are. Is that the world, first, the world is being eaten by locusts. Second, the church is a garden refuge. And third, but third, Jesus is conquering the world. Three things. The world is being eaten by locusts. And the church is a garden refuge in the midst of that. But 
We're not just hiding out in a garden refuge. Jesus is going out and he himself is actually conquering the world. Three important points uh, from this passage. I hope this is an encouragement to you. I think these are important words for us as a church. So three points this morning from Revelation 9. And the first is this, is that the world is being eaten by locusts. And by the world, what I mean by the world, when the Bible uses the word world, it's talking about the whole system of human culture when humans try to live apart from God. And so Augustine called it the city of man. And the city of man is at war with itself. The world is at war with itself. And we as Christians are in the midst of the world that is at war with itself. And one of the ways that I kind of think of it, um, back in February, my, my wife Shannon went to Mexico with, uh, with two of her sisters. It was her sister's 50th birthday. And she said, I want to bring my sisters to a resort, this fancy resort in Mexico. And so they're there for nine days or something like that. And toward the end of the trip, they're having lunch at one of the restaurants. And they see all these people running at them, carrying their kids, and something has happened. It turns out there was a shooting at the pool just 50 yards away from them, and it was uh, someone who hadn't paid their drug money, and there was a hitman that came in, shot three people, killed two of them right next to the pool. Shannon runs up into, the, you know, her, um, uh, into their room, and they're trying to stay safe, and it turns out that, you know, if you're going to Mexico, the cartels, the drug lords, don't want to hurt Tourists, because tourists are bringing money, but the cartels are at war with each other. And you might be caught in the middle of that. And, uh, and that's very similar. In the, in the first century, the Jews and the Romans were at war with each other, and the Christians were caught in this middle place in the middle of that war. That's very similar with us. Our world is at war with itself, destroying itself, and we're caught in some strange place right in the middle of it. And why is the world at war with itself. Well, I think this passage tells us, and you see how it begins there in verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given a key to the uh, shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with, uh, with the smoke of the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of, of scorpions of the earth. Okay, a couple of things to explain about this passage. Some of you might first wonder, what is the star that fell from heaven? Well, we'll find out later in Revelation that's Satan who fell from heaven. But the second thing is that this passage tells us the reality of a spiritual underworld. There is a bottomless pit, an abyss. Uh, out of which these swarms of locusts comes, and these swarms of locusts are so thick that they look like smoke. And, you know, I was thinking about this, how, you know, it's summertime, and we finally get to see the blue sky here in Bellingham, and some of you have been going camping, and you're up at night, and you see all the stars in the heavens. And what the Bible tells us is the reason there are stars in heavens is the visible heavens are a picture to us of the invisible heavens. So just as you see there's these countless stars in heaven, there's also countless angels in the spiritual heaven. And in the same way, there's this one great star that is so beautiful and glorious that you can't even see the glory of the other stars when it's out, right? The sun, the sun represents God. And God is in heaven, and he's so much more glorious than the other stars. Well, it turns out that it's not only that the heavens are a picture of the spiritual world, but the depths are as well. You know, if you've watched the Discovery Channel when they have a submarine that goes down into some abyss, and there's some crazy looking fish that lives by itself down there and you say oh it's so creepy way down in the depths of the abyss this is a picture of a spiritual underworld 
where there are demonic, deformed beings that are a reality in God's creation. And in these verses, it says that these demons like locusts have been let loose on the earth, which makes, you know, if you've ever read the New Testament and Jesus is always encountering all these demons and the disciples are always encountering all these demons, and you might say, I don't think I've ever met a demon. Why are there so many demons back then? But I don't have any demons here. It's because all these demons in that first generation were let loose when the Son of God came down. The bottomless pit was opened. But the main picture of these verses is that the world is then being eaten by these demonic locusts. And why do you think the image of locusts is being used? It's because locusts destroy. That's all locusts do. You know, if you've seen any of the news about the swarms of locusts that come into Africa and just devastate crops there. Uh, And in fact, you see that the king described, the king of the locusts described there in verse 11, how it says, they, they have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, who I think is Satan. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, which means destruction. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon, which means the destroyer. What the locusts do is they destroy. And these locusts, they don't destroy crops. What they do is they torment people. Look at verse 5. How it says, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, listen to these words, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. And I couldn't help reading those verses and thinking how much of a parallel we have in our culture right now. We live in an age of mass psychological torment. Uh, You know, counselors are just booked out as people are dealing with, inside their minds, there's a sense of meaninglessness, hopelessness, despair, emptiness, on profound levels, there's profound loneliness. And this is because the world is being eaten by locusts. And so what would be an example of a locust in our culture that eats everything and destroys? I'm going to give you an example. One of the spirits of our age is a general belief that people with power are almost by default abusers. You know, Karl Marx had said that all of human history is about the rich oppressing the poor and the poor rising up against the rich. And over the last century, the suspicion of rich people has spread to a suspicion of any person in a position of power or authority. And so just by having any kind of social power, you are suspect. And this is a complicated issue for Christians because uh, this heresy is, was only made possible by Christianity. The Bible historically has been the great champion of the oppressed. I mean, if you read through history, the Bible is the champion of oppressed people. And the Lord, the God of the Bible, over and over again, we find he loves the poor. He loves the orphan. He loves the widow. He loves the foreigner. He loves the disabled. He loves the, you know, the marginalized and those who are on the outside. And he wants to bring them in. He's a God of hospitality. And church leaders are warned that they will be judged by God more harshly. So they better take care of the people that are under them. And Jesus himself became the great victim. You know, he went onto the cross and he identified with all people who were, who were oppressed unjustly, who were beaten, who were, you know, who were scorned, or the innocent who have been mistreated. And yet, despite all that advocacy and the church being a place of caring for those who are abused, the Bible still says unapologetically things like, 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Workers, obey your masters. Church members, obey your leaders. In fact, the Lord Jesus himself appointed 12 men to be his disciples who will have authority over his whole church. The spirit of our age that says that all people in power are oppressors is a twisting of the truth. And the Bible is much more complicated on it. The Bible says you're, if you're rich, you might be wicked and oppressive or you might be righteous. There's righteous and wicked, poor, you know, rich people. And there's poor people who are wicked and poor people who are righteous. And Jesus calls all of them to repentance. So what does this have to do with the locusts? Well, what happens when you basically believe that in general, anyone in power is de facto an abuser? Well, apply that to a family. You know, a parent, an adult, has power over a child. And some of us, some of you might feel that way, that maybe just as a parent who is telling my children what to do, am I abusing them? Um, and since we have all explored our families of origin, you know, we've all thought about the failures of our parents. That's what the spirit of our age, we've thought about our parents' failures. We think those same things about ourselves, and we have an underlying suspicion that all parenting or discipline is abusive. And so that's why we live in a culture where a parent will let a 10-year-old child change their gender and think it would be wrong for me to tell them who they are and to tell them this is how you should live. This is how God made you to live. I'm doing violence or abuse to them to tell them that. The belief that parenting is by default abusive is a locus that will eat away the family. And if you eat away the family, what are you going to replace it with? Well, you know, maybe you have a school counselor. But isn't that school counselor trying to influence the student? Why doesn't the locust eat away the school counselor and the teacher and the administrator? Or if there's a doctor who thinks that they know what's healthy for the child because of their training, why doesn't the locust eat away the doctor too? Or the church? There is nothing that gets left untouched by locusts. Locusts eat everything. And I'll tell you, it touches every human relationship, even a friendship. If you have a friendship, a true friendship, that person is going to speak honesty into your life. And if you say, you can never tell me who to be or make me feel a sense of shame, there's no friendship. No human relationship will be left untouched by this swarm of locusts. And what is the psychological effect of a child growing up in a world thinking, I can't trust my parents, I can't trust my family, I can't trust my church, my pastors, my school, I can't trust my doctor, I can't trust my community, or I can't even trust my friends. I mean, what's the psychological effect of you growing up in that world? Anxiety, deeper than anxiety. Why do I even want to be alive in that world? And the truth is, the only protection against bad authorities is good authority. And this is what the Bible knows clearly. And the reason the spirit of our age is like a swarm of locusts is because it only tears down. This idea can only tear things down. It can never build anything up. Because if you build anything up, there's someone with power that needs to be torn down. And so first, we have this picture that the world is being eaten away by locusts. That might sound very doomsday. The demonic locusts of our culture are going to eat everything away, but this passage is really filled with hope. And so I want to turn to our second point, that while on the one hand we see that the world is being eaten by locusts, second, the church is a garden refuge in the midst of those locusts. 
And in the midst of the swarm of the locusts, there's a verse here that I think is so amazingly beautiful. And if, uh, read it along with me. I want you to follow the logic of verse 4. It says, they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plants or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, you see what this is saying. It's talking, the seal of God is uh, the Holy Spirit. And, and Christians have said that's baptism. It's baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the people sealed by God are the Christians. And so you have these two groups. You have the Christians and non-Christians. Those who've been sealed and those who've not been sealed. You have the church and the world around the church. And so what this means is that the grass and the green plants and the trees in the first half of the verse that aren't getting eaten by the locusts is us. That's who we are. And the way I picture it is in the midst of a world barren black with locusts that have eaten everything, there are these patches of green plants and trees and fruit and life and beauty and health. There are these gardens in the middle of it. And you can imagine all these uh, people who are out in the world who are being tormented by these locusts and wish they could be dead. And you imagine, where are they going to go? They're going to go to the gardens. Hopefully they go to the gardens. And that's who we are in this cultural moment where locusts are eating and destroying everything and causing massive psychological turmoil, we are a garden of refuge. And actually, I've had a couple experiences recently that people that have communicated basically this exact thing to me recently. I want to share both of them with you. One of them was a few months ago. My, my daughter was singing in a, uh, a concert in Linden where you kind of have a meal and then you listen to the concert and you meet some people in the community. And so the couple I was sitting across from, they were Christians. And, and we talked for a while. I was asking them what they do for work. And they were asking me. I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And, you know, tell me about the church. And then she was a teacher. And I said, oh, we have a school in our, in our, uh, in our church. And so uh, we talked for a while. And then the concert happens. And afterward, we're walking around. And the woman comes, comes up to me. And she says, I need to tell you something. I've had a dream. And I believe you need to hear it. Now I'm a Presbyterian. We don't have lots of dreams going on in our church. But I love hearing these kinds of things. Like, what's the spirit stirring in someone's heart? And, and so this is what she said her dream was. She said, I, see, I saw this forest fire where everything was being burned. And there's all these people that are trying to run away from the forest fire. And they're from all these different backgrounds, different church backgrounds, even Christian, non-Christian, and they're trying to get away from the forest fire. And it turns out there were these people that had built these shelters even before the forest fire had come. And all these diverse kinds of people are going to find these shelters and to find refuge in them. And she like looked me in the eyes and said, that's what you're doing. I, I'll tell you, I was encouraged by that. I think you should be encouraged by that. It's a very similar picture to what Revelation 9 is saying. And, and actually, you know, a second thing that happened just, uh, just last week, um, there was a family visiting our church that, who are missionaries in uh, Zambia. And maybe some of you uh, met them. They, they were sent out by another church in town, Oikos, and they know a lot of people in our church, and they're, you're, they're just here visiting on furlough. So I was talking to the husband, and he was saying to me, he's like, you know, coming back to Bellingham after 10 years, my experience is a lot darker here in Bellingham. But the spiritual climate in Bellingham has really changed, but he said just being here at church and worshiping was so encouraging, refreshing. And the thing that he said was so encouraging was watching everyone come forward to take communion. All of you 
approaching. He said, look at all these people coming and approaching Christ to receive grace from him. And then all these people just stuck around and wanted to talk after church. And he's like, they want to be here. They want to be in the garden. What's he saying? You are a garden and a refuge. You are living trees with sweet fruit in a world that's been eaten by locusts. You are green grass where weary people can come and lie down for rest. And what this passage is saying is not, oh, that's what you need to figure out how to be that. It's saying you are that. And God is going to protect you from the locusts and not let the locusts eat who you are. And even when, we allow sat- even when he allows satanic locusts to eat away the world, he promises these trees and plants will be protected. And so what we've seen so far is that the world is being eaten by locusts, but God has promised that the church is a garden refuge. And we're going to find more and more people from all different kinds of backgrounds who are going to find their way here, and we need to be ready to welcome them. Now, you might hear this. Church is a refuge. We're a shelter. We're safe kind of place in the world that's being destroyed. It sounds very like, let's huddle together and get into our fortress and keep one another protective and, uh, and actually, that's not the full picture in this passage because there's more to this passage. The Lord's posture in this passage is not simply defensive. And so that leads to our third point. So the world's being eaten by locusts. The church is a garden refuge. But the third thing is Jesus will conquer the world. Jesus will conquer the world. And let me explain this next paragraph in this passage as briefly as I can. Look at verse 13, where it says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel, is that the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And what's being described here, there's these four angels who are basically commanders of this angelic army. And you see that the size of this army is described in verse 16. It says, the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. So that's 200 million, if you don't have a calculator. 200 million riders on their horses in this army. Now there's some debate among scholars about this army. Is this a good army or these more evil demonic locust things? And uh, you might think that the description of them sounds evil. Look at what it says in verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire uh, fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And then down in verse 19 it says, For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them... They wound. And it says, horses with lion heads and snake tails, I mean, that's got to be evil. That's got to be a demon. Well, let me give you three clues why I think this is actually a good army. And the first is that there are all kinds of good angels other places in Revelation that are kind of a composite of different creatures. So the fact that these are weird creatures does not mean they're evil. They could be good. The second thing is that they're numbered. And some of you know there's a book of the Bible called Numbers. And that's about God counting his people, counting his armies. The locusts aren't counted. They're just a swarm of smoke of locusts. But God knows every single one of his people that are a part of his army. So the fact that they're numbers tells you this is God's army. But the third thing 
is that the army is filled with horses, not with locusts. And we've already talked about in Revelation uh, that horses represent God's people. We are the horses that Jesus is riding into the world to fight against evil and oppression. And what's happening in these verses is as the locusts from the bottomless pit bring destruction on the earth, Jesus counters the locusts with his own army by which he will conquer the world. And there's probably a lot to say about these, so many details in these verses, but let me just address one question that you might have. You might say, if this is God's army, if this is us, how can it say what it does there in verse 15? Look at verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. This army kills a third of mankind. How can that be us that we're supposed to go kill a third of mankind? Well, uh, you see these horses. What is this hor- these horses' weapon? Eight, verse ten, 18 tells us their weapon. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. Their weapon is their mouths, their speech, what they say. Revelation ends with Jesus going out into the world on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. And he slays all kinds of people with the sword of his mouth, with his words. We are at war, but it's not a war with bombs and guns and tanks. Jesus is riding into the world. Jesus is riding on us into the world, and we pray with our mouths, and we speak the truth in love with our mouths. And when people receive the truth that God's people speak, The Bible says that their old life is put to death. They die. And the promise here in the the decades of the trumpets is that a massive amount of people will die and be freed from their old lives. And that tells us that people come here to die. That's why you and I came here to die. Came here today so that we can put to death our old lives, put to death our, our, uh, our relationship to the world, put to death our sin. Jesus conquered Satan's sin in the world by dying And we must die with him because we believe that whoever dies with Jesus will be raised with him. Our old lives need to die that his new life might come into us. And that is our invitation to the world. Come and die with Jesus. And the promise of these verses is that many people will. Jesus will conquer the world. And what an important passage of scripture for us as a church to understand the reality of the world we are in. To know that the world is being eaten by locusts, but we are a garden refuge where all different kinds of people will come to escape the plagues. But that, that does not mean that Jesus is just hiding out in a refuge. He has his own army going out into the world. And so our hope is in him. Let us hold fast to our confession that Jesus is the true king. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for this text that we might know the reality of the situation of our world and of the church and of your purposes and how you work. Lord, help us to trust you. May our words be used by you. Teach us to pray. Teach us to speak the truth in love. And Lord, may many come to this garden that their old lives may die and they might find new life in you. Lord, may we die to our old lives and find life in you. 
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.